You know, we are in a series called Storyteller, if you're joining us for the first time. And we've been talking about the parables of Jesus and why Jesus used stories to communicate uh, the message of the kingdom of heaven. And he, uh, he used stories to convey what the, the kingdom of heaven is like or what the culture of heaven feels like. But he also used stories to conceal truth uh, from those who would do Jesus harm or who would, who would have this ill intent of, of his gospel message, the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time were looking for ways to accuse Jesus before it was his time to go to the, tr- the cross. And so he used stories to conceal truth from them, but also to reveal truth for those people who had ears to hear and eyes to see the message of the kingdom of God. So if, if you had an open heart and you were hungry to hear the message of the kingdom, you could interpret the stories that Jesus told. And you know, I had been planning for a while now to talk about the Good Samaritan today, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But last night, as I was praying in my office, I spent some time just asking the Lord, what do you want to communicate to the church? Um, I don't ever want to uh, be communicating something that, that the Lord, you know, he, he, if he has other plans, I want to make sure that I accommodate his plans because they come first. Amen. And I heard him say, just really quietly in my heart, I just felt like the Lord said, tell my church that I'm coming soon and I want them to be ready. And so, you know, we've been saying that for a long time. We've been saying that for years and years and years. But, you know, today we're a lot closer to eternity than we were yesterday. Amen. And Jesus is coming soon. And when you read the Bible and when you see the signs of the end times and when you hear about what is going to be taking place on the earth, you know, around the time that Jesus returns, we're living in the end times. And you know what, I, I, I want to live my life in a way where I'm always ready for Jesus to return. And so, you know, yesterday we talked, or last week we talked about the parable of the talents and how Jesus gave this parable towards the end of his earthly ministry. Uh, and in fact, in the very next chapter, Matthew 26, is when he's arrested and he begins his journey to the cross. But in Matthew chapter 25, he tells three consecutive parables that are all in relation uh, to signs of the end times. His disciples are asking him the question that we all want to know. How do we know you're coming back? What are the signs of your return? Give us, give us a hint. Give us a clue. And so Jesus in Matthew 24 tells him about some signs of the end times. And then in Matthew 25, he tells these three parables about how to be ready or how to be uh, living in the meantime as we're waiting for Jesus to return. And so the first story that Jesus tells out of these three parables is the parable of the ten virgins. And this is the story that I felt like we needed to talk about today. The next story was the story of the ten talents, is what we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to the message. And then finally, he talks about a third parable about sheep, separating the sheep from the goats, and how uh, the sheep enter into the kingdom of God because they were compassionate to the least of these. They fed the hungry. They clothed the naked. They visited those sick and in prison. And they welcomed the stranger. And so Jesus is, he's got a message of how we're supposed to live in the meantime. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 25, <clears throat> verses 1 through 13. We're going to start at the beginning of Matthew 25. Let me get there too. All right, are you there? Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps. Already, this is an odd parable for those of us who aren't familiar with the culture of the Jews at the time. And they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, 
the wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Uh, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the hour or the day. So this is an odd parable if we aren't familiar with Jewish wedding customs. But for Jesus' listeners, this story would have been very relevant and would have carried a lot of weight. There were three steps or three stages in a Jewish, Jewish wedding. They looked a lot different from our Western weddings that we have today. But there were three uh, stages in a Jewish wedding. It had three parts. The first part was the engagement. And in the engagement phase, the groom would go to the bride's father and would purchase the bride and make a marriage covenant with her. So right off the, from the very beginning, he would purchase the bride and he would make a marriage covenant with her, promising her that he is going to marry her and love her and be faithful to her. Then the second part of the, of the wedding was the betrothal, where the groom goes away to prepare a place for him and his bride to live. He would literally build a house, probably on his parents' property, and build a place, get a place ready for his bride and him to live. And during this time of separation, uh, the groom would write letters and send gifts to his bride, just reminding her how much he loves her and giving her gifts and letting, letting her know that, he's, that she's still valuable to him. That was the second part. The third part of the Jewish wedding was the wedding feast. And it's when the groom comes back for his bride and he cons- they consummate the marriage and there's this great wedding feast that lasted for about seven days. It was this giant party. And this is where the parable takes place, is when the groom is returning for his bride. But real quick, before we continue, I hope you caught the imagery that you see uh, in, in, of why the church is referred to as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom because the cross was the engagement, wasn't it? It's where Jesus purchased his bride. It's where Jesus purchased his church. And he made a new covenant with his church. Not a covenant of the law. Not a covenant of, of, of legalism and having to do all the right steps to earn his love and salvation. But no, it was a new covenant. It was a covenant of grace. Where he unconditionally, while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. He purchased us on the cross. That was the engagement. That When Jesus rose from the grave, he left to go pl- prepare a place for us, didn't he? The betrothal. And you know what? Jesus, after he left to prepare a place, he sends his church gifts and letters, didn't he? He sent us the Holy Spirit as a gift to remind us how much he still loves us, how much he's still with us. He gave us his word. He's written these letters to us in his word to to keep us in touch with him. That's the betrothal. And the third part has yet to come. The wedding feast, when the groom returns and when, when there's a, a wedding feast that takes place, that has yet to come. You, you and I, church, we are a bride-to-be. 
We are in the engagement phase still, and the wedding feast has yet to come when Jesus returns. I know a lot of men in this room probably have an issue with being described as the bride of Christ. I know I do at times. Uh, But but there's this reality that, that, that God uses the picture of marriage, a covenant of marriage. He uses the image the imagery of a marriage to describe the church's relationship with Jesus and with, with God in heaven. Instead of carrying flowers, so, so this, this, this parable takes place when the groom returns, right? And, and uh, instead of making the story about what the bride is doing, because if we're the bride of Christ, you would think that Jesus would tell a parable about what the bride is doing. But instead, Jesus uses this imagery of these ten virgins, or these bridesmaids, if you will. Now, in a Western wedding, the bridesmaids, they all carry flowers down the aisle, right? And they stand alongside the bride. But it's different in in a Jewish wedding. So, in a Jewish wedding, instead of carrying flowers, the bridesmaids would carry lamps or torches. And these lamps would be basically a stick with a bowl on top that was filled with oil and there was a wick that they had to maintain and they had to trim. And they would carry these torches down the street at night. So it was, it was at nighttime that the groom would come back and he would, he would declare that he's come for his bride. And the virgins would come out to the street to meet with the groom and they would ring the bride. And the whole wedding party would walk down the street at night with these lamps lit. And this was such an important part of the wedding procession. This was an important part of the wedding that took place. It was such an important part that rabbis and teachers of the time, they would suspend their lectures. They would suspend their teachings and they would, they would come out to the streets and they didn't, they'd allow everybody else to come out to the streets so that everybody could watch them walk down the aisle or excuse me, walk down the street in the dark. Now, this was the, 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 the culture in Jesus's time was very honor shame based. It was a, it was a form of social currency, honor shame based. And it's why, uh, and, and the first miracle that Jesus performs, he's at a wedding in Cana and they run out of wine at the beginning of the wedding feast. It's a seven day long party and they run out of wine at the beginning of the feast. Now to run out of wine at a wedding feast would bring great dishonor and shame to the bride and the groom and their families. And Jesus, when he turned the water into wine, he was saving them from shame. In fact, he made the best wine that anybody had ever tasted. So he actually honored them in that moment and lifted them up. Well, if, uh, if one of the ten virgins or one of the bridesmaids, if you were to, uh, if your lights were to go out, during the processional, as you were walking along, it would bring such dishonor and such shame to the bride and the groom that it was very important for the, bri- for the, for the ten virgins. It was very important for the bridesmaids to keep their lamps lit. I've often wondered, you know, we're talking about eternity here. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about entering into the kingdom of God. And you've got these, you've got these five wise virgins who got extra oil. And five foolish ones who didn't have enough. And they, they asked the wise ones, can you give us some of your oil? And I haven't, I've always had an issue with this. Why didn't they give them some oil? I mean, this is eternity we're talking about. I would have shared my oil. I would have given them some oil because I've got extra, right? But the wise ones knew that if they were to share their oil, none of them, at some point during the processional, all of their lights would have gone out. And they would have been walking in the dark. And it would have dishonored the bride and the groom. So they were wise by saying, no, no, no. If we give you some of our oil, then everybody's going to be walking in darkness. We need to save our oil so that we have enough light 
to walk down the street. So there's this, there's this picture that we have of, 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 of the wise of, of the church. And oftentimes in the Bible, um, churches are referred to as, as women. So we, there's when, when, when the apostle Paul, you know, he, he says she, he, when he talks about the church, he uses she or her, and he kind of refers to the church as a woman, as that bride. And, and the, the virginity of those bridesmaids represents the purity of the church. That, that there's this picture of a pure church carrying light for all the world to see. They're carrying li- the light of Jesus for all the world to see. And there's this imagery. Now, there's further symbolism in this, in this story. Now, some commentators believe that, that it stops there. The buck stops there. There isn't, you can't read more into the lamp or to the oil uh, beyond what they contribute to the parable because the story is simply about being ready for Jesus' re- Jesus's return. However, I would argue, and I think a lot of commentaries would argue as well, in light of how often oil is used in the Bible as a symbol for the Holy Spirit or the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's difficult to ignore what symbolism this could contribute to this story, what it could contribute to this parable. In the Bible, uh, oil, or excuse me, um, I want, some people suggested that the lamps that they're carrying refers to the word of God. Because Psalms 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. And so some commentators and, and theologians have thought that, well, maybe this is referring to the word of God. And Jesus is saying that the wise virgins are, are Bible-believing churches, that are churches that stand on the word of God. And I believe that that's partially true, but it goes further than that because it's not about whether or not they had a lamp. Everybody had a lamp. The wise virgins and the foolish virgins they all had lamps, but not everybody had enough oil. In the Bible, oil usually refers to the Holy Spirit. See, those who have truly decided to follow Jesus have spirits that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit or have been born of the Spirit. And the evidence of being born again, how do we know that we've been born again? The evidence of being born again of the Spirit are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's in Galatians 5.22. Jesus said in another story that a tree is known by its fruit. How do you know that it's an apple tree? It produces apples, right? A tree is known by its fruit. How do you know someone is born of the Spirit? They produce fruits of the Spirit. They bear fruit in their life of love, joy, peace, patience, all those fruits of the Spirit. And if you want to know whether or not you're producing the fruits of the Spirit, then we all need to consider this. We all need to consider how do I act when I am squeezed, when I'm put under pressure? What kind of fruits do I produce when I'm put under pressure, when I'm squeezed? What happens when you squeeze an orange? You get orange juice, don't you? You don't get apple juice, you get orange juice. What happens when you squeeze an apple? You get apple juice. You see, when you squeeze a Christian, and then when they're put under pressure, you should see love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruits of the Spirit should ooze from a Christian when they are put under pressure. It's evidence of your regeneration. The Holy Spirit has, you've been born again. You have a nature that looks like God, that, that desires the things of God. 
But oftentimes we have many Christians who get squeezed. And when they get squeezed and put under pressure, out comes anger and pride and selfishness and greed and control, depression and anxiety. These are the foolish virgins that Jesus is talking about. We have many people in our world today who would say that I know God. I know God. I, I go to church or my parents were Christians and they went to church. I know God. But when you look at their life and the fruits that they produce when they're put under pressure, when they're squeezed, it does not produce the fruits of the Spirit. Now, are we all perfect? Do we all perfectly produce the fruits of the Spirit? No, we mess up. We, we've, we've all been angry. We've all been anxious. We've all, we've all lashed out. We've all been pri- have had pride and greed in our life. We're not perfect. But when you have a Spirit that's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit fills your lamp and lives inside of you, you have a nature that has a tendency for God and the things of God. You have a desire to know God more. You have a desire to orient your life in the ways of God, to be committed to reading the word of God, to be committed to spending time with God's presence in prayer in the quiet place every day. But we live in a world where people, you can ask, I mean, you could walk on the street and, and it's probably not as popular anymore, but there was once a time in America where you could ask any person in America and they would probably tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Does it mean that they live out the things of God? Does it mean that they produce the fruits of the Spirit? Maybe, maybe not. But Jesus is saying there is going to be a difference between people whose, whose lamps are filled with oil, whose spirits have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and those who just claim to have it. There's a moment for every true disciple of Jesus when that person says, Jesus, I give you everything. I'm not holding anything back. And that's the moment your lamp is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's, this another, part in the, there's another part in the story where uh, the door is shut after the wise virgins enter into the wedding feast the door is shut. Now, typically at a wedding feast, the door remains open. They would keep the door open for people to come and go. But Jesus is surprising his listeners by saying that the door will be closed and there will not be another opportunity to enter once it is closed. And he will tell those who come to the door after it's been shut, I never knew you. And this is a recurring message that Jesus delivered in Matthew chapter 7. And Matthew seven twenty one. And church, this, this passage bothers me. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This verse bothers me, church. It bothers me because you can watch somebody perform miracles, even drive out demons and prophesy, do things in the name of God, and their spirits haven't actually been transformed. That bothers me. That's why Jesus, when when he talks about the last days, he says, beware of false teachers. Beware of the ones who would come and try to dazzle you with with signs and wonders and and try to convince you that they're from God. Beware of those people. We should follow the word of God and the people that make the word of God the foundation of their life. 
So Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? We've kind of been talking about it through this series. The will of the Father, Jesus describes in Matthew 6, 10, is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of the Father is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Well, how do I bring heaven to earth? We bring heaven to earth by obeying his word. James says, the book of James talks about, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. Don't just, don't just, don't just receive it and make it this intellectual exercise, but in order to actually believe in the word of God, and, and center your life on the word of God. You have to be doers of the word of God. You have to put into practice what Jesus tells us to do. That is how we bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But wait a second. Isn't that what these people in Matthew 7 are doing? They're prophesying. They're driving out demons. They're performing many miracles. Isn't that being obedient to the word of God? Isn't that bringing heaven to earth? Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 27. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I get to touch on the Good Samaritan anyway. But in Luke chapter 10, this lawyer comes to Jesus. And he's trying to, uh, he's trying to trick Jesus. He's, he, he might have some sinister motives by asking this question. But he asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I know that I'm going to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus flips the question back to him and says, well, what does the law say? What does the Bible say? And the lawyer responds by saying this, Luke 10, 27. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, bingo, you got it. Good job. You're correct. And then the lawyer continues, well, then who's my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? He's trying to get out of, of, of loving a certain group of people. He wants, to, he wants his love to be convenient. He wants to love the people that he feels like is easy to love. So he's trying to get out. He's, Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? I need an excuse to not love the people that I hate. And Jesus, we'll talk about the story probably later, but Jesus says, no, it's not about who's your neighbor. It's are you going to be a neighbor to those around you? That's the point of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But, but this man, he responds by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. That is the most important law. Not only do we love people, and that's where I think a lot of people are going to get it wrong because they are going to orient, maybe some people, the, the foolish virgins, would orient their life in a way to get attention for themselves by doing things for people, by, by making people love them. And, 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 and Jesus says that that's important. But first, we have to develop a devotion for God. We have to learn to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything about ourselves belongs to God. What does it mean to love the Lord with all of your heart and your mind and, and, and your soul and your strength? Well, I believe that uh, it basically means all of you. But if you think about it, there's this, there's this moment in our life. And I believe this, this might be a progression 
or it might just come out all at once. But there's this moment in our life when we say yes to Jesus. You know, when you, are, you enter into a relationship with, with somebody, there's this honeymoon phase where you just feel, you're looking through rose-colored glasses and, and you give them your affection and it comes easy, doesn't it, right? There's this moment in our life with God where we give him our hearts and we say, Jesus, I love you. I, I give you everything. Would you, would you take my affection? Would you take my desires? I, I give you my heart. But it goes farther than that because we surrender our soul to God. We surrender our obedience to him and our, our behaviors to him and our desires and the, and the wishes and, and wills for our own life. We surrender that to God by giving him our soul and we love the Lord with our soul. And then Paul takes it a step further in Romans 12 where he says, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That to love the Lord with your mind means to allow the Lord to amend truth in your head. We all have a different version of truth. We all have a different definition of truth based on our life experiences and how we interpret the Bible. But when you surrender your mind to the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm going to choose to love you with my mind, then there's this amending that takes place in our mind where the Lord begins to orient truth and orient our minds around his word. And we surrender our thoughts to him and the way we think. And we take each thought captive. We learn to live like that. And then it goes a step further by surrendering your strength, by loving the Lord with your strength, by not just, not just allowing him to change the inside of you, but it begins to produce fruit. And you begin to go and use your strength to benefit the people around you and tell people about Jesus and show others in your life the love of God. We love the Lord with all of us, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when we do that, we know our lamps are full. The Holy Spirit has regenerated us. Does it happen all at once? No, spiritual growth is a process. There's a process of maturing, but we submit ourselves every day to that process of spiritual growth and say, Jesus, I want to be transformed by you. I want to look more and more like you. Did you know that in a wedding procession, if you did not have a torch with you and you joined into the wedding procession, you would have been seen as a wedding crasher. It was important to have your torch it was important to have your lamp lit because people were going to think, hey, who's this person crashing the party? Who's this? They might even thought that you were a robber or some brigand coming in to, to take over, do something, something bad. It was important to keep your lamps lit with you so that, so that people knew you were with the wedding party. I don't know if any of you have ever crashed a wedding before. Or been to a wedding that had wedding crashers in it. But essentially, uh, wedding cra- this happens all the time. You can go on Google and read hilarious stories of people who have crashed parties. But a wedding crasher shows up to the party and they have no idea who the bride and groom are. They don't have any relationship. They want the party more than the bridegroom. They want to experience the, the wedding party more than they want a relationship with the bridegroom. And some people today want the kingdom of God without the king. They want the kingdom of God without the king. They want the wedding party without the bridegroom. I just finished a book. It's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. I think I might have mentioned it last week, but it is, I, I would highly suggest that everybody reads this. He, he provides this cultural commentary uh, for, for what is happening in, in the West, in Western culture, uh, in terms of, of, of we're entering into this post-Christian phase 
uh, this post-Christendom. And uh, he talks about the three enemies of your soul, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so it's essentially a book about spiritual war- warfare, but he arranges the book in such a way that, that makes it so palatable and, uh, and, and um, it's so practical as well. And so in this book, he mentions um, how, how each culture, um, there are three stages when that culture experience, excuse me, there are three stages that a culture goes through when they experience the teachings of Jesus. So the first stage is just called pre-Christian. Now, in the pre-Christian stage, this is, this is Rome before Paul. Before the gospel came to Rome. Rome was a pagan, polytheistic, uh, ruled by sex and violence. They were superstitious. They were hyper-spiritualized, but had no truth or, or moral standing. Uh, that, was, that was pre-Christian. And, and if you think of uh, barbaric tribes who have child sacrifices and, and, and war with other tribes, and there's no, there's no teachings of Jesus. They're just ruled by the desires of their flesh and superstitious uh, things. Uh, that's the pre-Christian culture. But then there's... When the gospel of Jesus comes into a culture, it begins to develop a moral, a moral foundation. And so we see that in Rome, this pagan polytheistic civilization, within a short amount of time, became the center of the Catholic Church. And they, they adopted the teachings of Jesus. And there begins to, to be this, this moral foundation for people to base society off of. And they make laws that are founded on the Bible. We think of America and how America was founded on the teachings of the Bible. And yes, we've drifted away, but originally America was founded on the teachings of the Bible and many other cultures and nations were also developed on the teachings of the Bible. And so uh, there's never truly a Christian culture because in a Christian culture, yes, you have a foundation uh, of biblical teachings, but it's always intermingled with paganism. It's always intermingled with, with other religions. And so you never truly have a Christian culture. But then this interesting thing happens. It's almost like Genesis 3 happens all over again. And it's this cycle. It's, it's a tale as old as time. It's an ancient thing that, that humanity does. As we reach this point where we decide we want the teachings and the morality of Jesus, but we want to decide for ourselves what is appropriate, what is good, and what is right. And so we, the culture reaches this point, and it's a reaction against Christian culture. It's a reaction against the teachings of Jesus that I want to keep, um, keep goodness in our culture— and instead of reverting back to violence and, and, and barbaric practices, we redefine goodness as, as anything that makes you feel happy as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And so every person becomes uh, the new foundation for their truth. What's true for you might not be true for me, but that's okay. As long as you don't step on my toes, uh, we're good. And so it's, it's an attempt to keep goodness in the world, but, but, they, but people want to define what that goodness is instead of trust God, instead of trust the word of God. And so we're moving into this, the, America has moved into a post-Christian culture where people are now saying, listen, we want everyone to be happy. We want everybody to have equal rights. We want people to, to, to do good things, but we are going to define, we are going to decide what is good, and we're not going to let the Bible do that for us anymore. See, it was the teachings of the Bible that took Rome to where it is 
today, the birthplace of the Catholic Church, and it was the teachings of the Bible that influenced the culture of America and cultures around the world. People want to share in the kingdom of God, but not everyone wants the king. People want to come to the wedding feast and experience the party, but not everybody wants to know the bridegroom. And I hope you don't read this story and think that your entrance into the kingdom of God is dependent upon your own efforts. I've got to keep my lamp full. I've got to trim my wick. I've got to save myself. Because remember, the virgins, the five foolish virgins, had to go to another source to get their oil filled. They couldn't produce it themselves. It wasn't something they could do for themselves. God provides the oil when we ask it of him. He fills our lamps when we ask it from him. It's he who does that work. It's the Holy Spirit that does the regeneration work. It's not, it's, not, it's not your efforts. It's not trying harder. It's not earning salvation. It's grace. And this story shouldn't bring you fear and anxiety. It should cause you, though, to ask the question, is my lamp full? Has, has my oil been checked lately? Have you had an oil check lately? Or have I been standing around with an empty lamp this entire time thinking that I'm ready for Jesus to come back? Where's your oil at? Do you need an oil check? We don't get saved by our own measures, but we do have a responsibility to remain vigilant to Jesus' return. How, how do I remain vigilant? What do I do in the meantime? Well, like I was saying at the beginning that this parable was the first of three consecutive stories. And after this parable, Jesus goes on to talk about stewardship, what we talked about last week, about using wisely what God has already given you. He's given us all different measures of favor. He's given us all different measures of resources. And he's not calling us to be better than one or another. He's calling us to use to the full potential what he's already given us. Not to compare, but to consider your own capacity and to grow in faithfulness in the meantime. And then he goes on to talk about meeting practical needs of the people around you. He talks about this parable of sheep and goats. And and the sheep enter into the kingdom because uh, the master says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He's talking about people who meet the practical needs of others. And Jesus is saying in this parable that as we wait for Jesus to return, we should be using to our full potential, stewarding well the resources he's given us to have compassion on others and meet the practical needs of people around us. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, visiting the sick and in prison. I want to meet the spiritual needs of people, but we're also called to meet practical needs as well, people in our community. This Christmas, as Sarah mentioned, we have an amazing opportunity to meet a spiritual need. I think that uh, by doing this, I'm really excited. I watch The Chosen show avidly, and I'm a big fan of it. 
And if you haven't checked it out, I'd encourage you to do it. You can watch it on the computer or on the app. And um, it, it's just a wonderful tool to tell people about Jesus. And so this, this, you don't have to watch any of the previous seasons to see this Christmas episode. And so it's really an opportunity to let the community know, hey, we're doing something for you that's free of charge. We're going to have popcorn and snacks and cookies and hot cocoa. And, and we're going to decorate this place all Christmassy. And it's going to be an opportunity to just invite people to hear the message of Christmas, to hear the message of Jesus. And, and in that way, I believe that we're meeting a spiritual need in our community, but we also have an opportunity to meet a practical need as well with this His Helping Hands dinner. I love that Don had an opportunity to come up and up here and share about His Helping Hands and the work that they do uh, and, and in the community around us. Uh, but but we get we have an opportunity to invite people who just need a meal and who need relationship and who need friendship to come and have a Christmas dinner here. Actually, it's not going to be here at our church. It's going to be in Soap Lake. But we have this opportunity to partner with His Helping Hands and meet practical needs of people in our community. And so uh, in two weeks from now, I'd encourage you to come to this luncheon that we're having right after church on the 28th. And you can learn about how you can be involved in that and how to begin serving and how to begin giving your time to other people. I'm very excited for this Christmas season. I believe that God wants to activate the church to a new level because he's returning soon. He's returning soon and we need to be prepared. And, you know, I, uh, this last week, I, I've been so encouraged by what God is doing in his church. All around us, the world is falling apart. It seems like it, doesn't it? And, and if you watch the news and if it's the only thing that you're watching, if you're on your Facebook feed and you're just seeing what's happening here and what's happening there and, it, it's really easy to be filled with fear and anxiety. But if you tune into the voice of God and you spend time, you, he will tell you and you will see what he's doing in the church. We are living in a time that's unlike any other. And I believe the church will never be the same after this season. We have an opportunity in this post-Christian culture where people are redefining truth for themselves. We have an opportunity to figure out the things that God, the tools that God is giving the church to be more effective to the community around us. But we all need to, we all have a responsibility to tune into God's voice and hear what he's doing. I believe that each one of us has an active role to play. So church, I'm going to ask you to stand with me and I want you, I want to pray over you. And I I just want to ask the Lord to fill our lamps, to fill them up with his Holy Spirit, to regenerate our spirits. But first, everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to ask this question. If you're here today and you have not been born again, your spirit has not been regenerated by the Lord. And you realize that you need your lamp to be filled. Because you don't want to be caught on the opposite side of the door when Jesus returns. Perhaps you're here today and you say, I'm ready. I'm ready to give him everything. It's been a journey. It's been a struggle. Maybe you've wandered away and you want to come back to the Lord. But you need the Lord to regenerate your spirit. If you've never asked the Lord to come into your life and regenerate your spirit, for the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and to give you a new nature, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand right now so I can pray with you. If that's you, raise your hand. Praise God. Jesus, I ask this morning that you would fill up our lamps. God, that your Holy Spirit would 
would show us what to do in the meantime as we wait for you to return. And God, I thank you for the joy that you have marked the church with. You are marking your church with joy and peace that the world does not have. In this chaotic time, in this chaotic season where it feels like everything else is falling apart, your people have the hope of Jesus to cling to and the word of God to base their life on. I thank you for that hope. I thank you for that joy. I ask that you would fill every person in this room, that they would go out and, f- and find ways to meet spiritual and practical needs of others. Jesus, we love you, and we eagerly await to see you face to face and to embrace you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And the church said, amen.